Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, some of you are, I think, not familiar with how we do corporate prayer as a church when we come together in that way. And so just by way of giving a little clarity to that, we really strive when we come together corporately in prayer to um, kind of meet the scriptural criterion of being of one heart and one mind. When you see the, the public and corporate prayers in the scriptures, it's almost as if uh, the words are recorded. You look through the book of Acts and the words are recorded of one person speaking, and yet it says the church was together in prayer, and then here's what they say. And they're all obviously not reading in unison off of a sheet of paper. But the point is that they are together, whoever is speaking, they are together as the body of Christ, as a spiritual organism raising the same burdens in the same way with the same heart and same mind to the Lord. And I think certainly in my experience and perhaps some of yours as well, churches struggle with the idea of corporate prayer and uh, our elder that's now in Pennsylvania, Steve used to say that the least attended uh, time when of the church's gathering is times of corporate prayer. And I think that that's true partly at least because we're uncomfortable with it. And often it's tedious and it's boring and we try to stay awake because essentially what we end up with is uh, just serial personal prayers one after the other. And each person is just kind of doing his prayer closet praying out loud and people are like, okay, I'm trying to stay awake while I'm listening to you uh, drone on, whatever it happens to be. And so we as a body have really tried to nurture this idea of corporate prayer where we really are together, one heart, one mind, one burden. And that involves us, in a sense, being gathered in around a certain theme or a certain perspective. And that's what I'm trying to do today. This isn't a sermon and we're not continuing in, in Hebrews, but I want to just put in front of you some of the things that I think are important for us as we gather together specifically to pray in terms of the sickness, the suffering, the struggles that we as a body are facing right now, and not just us, but throughout the wider church, certainly in this country, and I would say even throughout the world. Well, I mentioned to you in my own thinking about this that my heart, you know, if we take this idea of seeking the Lord and, and seeking the Lord together in adversity and suffering, my mind immediately went to these psalms of lament. And the fact that when we understand what lament is, and we're coming together today in prayer as lament, it doesn't mean complaining, it doesn't mean grumbling, it doesn't mean finding fault with God. It doesn't mean crying in our soup or whatever. There is a certain 
understanding biblically of what lament is. And, and as I said, a hint to that is the fact that lament is a central dimension of worship. We see that even from the Psalms. We see that from the various prayers that are offered, whether Nehemiah's prayer, whether the Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. The, the great prayer, you know, Jacob's great prayer to God. There's a lament, there's a burden, there's an expressing to God of, of a struggle or of suffering or of hardship. And that's the sort of lament that we see particularly in the Psalms. And I read those two Psalms to let you kind of see how this works a little bit. The kind of lament that is a dimension of worship is not personally oriented per se. It's not, oh God, I'm sick, please heal me. God, I lost my job, please give me a job. That's not really how lament works in the biblical sense. It's not personally oriented towards our individual issues as such, but it is ultimately oriented towards our situation in the light of the larger purpose of God of which we're a part. If you will, it's eschatologically oriented. It's oriented towards our understanding of what this God has ultimately purposed and promised, what it is that he is doing in the macro and how we fit into that. So let me put it this way. Lament really reflects and expresses our understanding of the future that God has ordained and the present contradiction of that future in our experience. The fact that what meets our experience doesn't line up with what it is that God has promised, what it is that God has ordained. And that shows us, even as we consider the Psalms we looked at, I think how lament is a form of praise. The Psalms of Lament are all set in the context of Israel's life with God. But Israel's life with God in the sense of, God, you have chosen us as your people for the sake of the world. And in many ways, we have failed you. And the calamities that have come upon us are largely of our own doing because we have been unfaithful. And even if they're not of our own doing, they are nonetheless experiences that seem to contradict our election, our calling, our place in your purposes, that we are the children of the living God. And yet we trust you. That's this idea of loving kindness. We trust in the Lord's loving kindness. It's not just we trust that God is kind and he's loving and he cares about us. The idea, again, in the Psalms is that we trust that God will be faithful to his purposes, that his reason to call us, to set us apart, to mark us out as his people, and to appoint for us this glorious destiny, that will be fulfilled. It will be realized. We trust you for that. We trust you for the future you've ordained, even though right now in this time, the pieces don't fit together and we can't understand how these things serve that purpose or how they fit together with even our own place 
in your calling. That's the way in which lament works in Israel's psalms, and ultimately that helps us to see how we as a lamenting people, our lament becomes an issue of worship and praise. And what I'd like us to consider as kind of the framework for our prayer together today uh, is actually Romans 8, which becomes this kind of climax of Paul's treatment of, again, the God who is faithful, the God who has purpose, the God who has called, the God who is working all of these things according to his purposes, even in the midst of things that don't seem to make sense, that don't seem to fit. And as much as I'd like to go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, I'm going to pick this up uh, because, again, this is a climactic passage ending in a great doxology, but I'd like to pick it up at verse 12 in chapter 8. Verse 12 of Romans 8. Well, let's just actually go back to to verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh. He says, those who are governed, driven, determined by the flesh cannot please God. But you, brethren, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, in the spirit of Christ, who is the spirit of God, though the body is dead because of sin, not just your personal sin, but this reality of, of a curse still hanging on the creation, yet nonetheless the spirit, the inner man is alive because of righteousness. God's own faithfulness to his purposes. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of the God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then that that God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. And so, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All who are being led by the Spirit of God in this way, these are the sons of God, the children of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. A cry of endearment, a cry of, of confident dependence of loving communion. And the Spirit himself also bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, heirs of all that Christ has inherited and will yet inherit. If indeed we suffer with him as sharers in him in order that we may also be fully, finally, exhaustively glorified with him. And so I consider the sufferings of this present time that they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God in glory. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. It was subjected by him who subjected it unto hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom 
of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, we who are, have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the deliverance, the liberation of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that sees is not hope. Why would one hope for what he sees, what is present, what is already there for him? He's not hoping in that which he's already embraced as present. But if we hope for what we do not see, then with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And it's in accordance with that principle how hope contributes to our patient perseverance. The Spirit also serves the same end. He helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings unutterable. They can't be put into words. They're not articulate in that way. And he who searches the hearts, who is that? God who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God. With the same mind, with the same will, with the same purpose, with the same understanding. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, his children, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. In what sense? That he would be the firstborn among many brethren, who would be heirs of God, joint heirs with the glorified Messiah. And those whom he marked out for that end, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he has also glorified. We stand in that glory even now. And so what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? The one who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how is it that he will not also with him freely give us all things? He gave us the son. Will he not give us all that is needful, all that is necessary towards the perfecting of what he has accomplished in the Son? Who will lay a charge against God's chosen? God is the one who justifies. God is the one who declares who are his children. Who is the one that then can condemn? Messiah Jesus is the one who died, but rather who is raised. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. As it is written in the Psalms, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Another psalm of lament that ultimately ends on the high point of trust in the God who is faithful. Paul understands this. He's drawing from that. In a no, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, principalities, things present, things, seen, things to come, not even powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just a couple summary points again to frame our thinking as we think about praying and worship and praise in the context of adversity and difficulty. What a lament actually looks like. The first thing that Paul presumes here is that sonship necessarily involves suffering. To be children of God means that we will suffer. And precisely in this particular sense, and all of this is in the context, but I'll let you sort it out for yourselves. Specifically in this sense, as sharers in Jesus' resurrection, as sharers in his life, his new creational life, we share in that which comes against him. Fundamentally, the suffering that Paul has at the center of his argument is the suffering that comes to those who have already become a part of the new creation in the Messiah, but in the context of a creation that still operates according to the curse. The contradiction, the antithesis between the reality of new creation and old creation. The spirit is alive, the inner man is alive because of righteousness, the faithfulness of God and the Messiah, but the outer man is perishing. The outer man is subject to the curse. And we live our lives in a world that is still at odds with God, with his kingdom, with his new creation. That's the sort of suffering, if you will, new creational life lived out within the old creation. That kind of suffering is the point or the focal point of Paul's talking about groaning and longing. The lament that has groaning and longing at its center is oriented not towards our personal problems, but towards the contradiction, the antithesis between who we are in the Messiah and what life looks like. If you will, the contradiction between already and not yet. What God has already put in place, raised up in Messiah Jesus, seated in the heavenly places in him, and yet, and yet, and yet. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 8. I've often referred to this groaning, this longing as eschatological angst. Knowing what God has ordained, knowing where this is going, but not being there yet. And the struggle that comes in that disconnect. You see, we have the mind of Christ, Paul says, and yet we often, probably most often, can't perceive how our present circumstances fit with and serve God's larger purposes and work. We don't see how that fits together. And we want to ask the question of why, God? Why are you doing this? Why am I sick? Why did I lose this person? Why this? Why that? Instead of saying, what does this tell me about how I should be living? What does this tell me about how I should be thinking? What does this tell me about how I should be worshiping? 
Well, what we do know, and what is at the center of Paul's argument here, is that our circumstances, however much we don't understand them in their specifics, our circumstances are working toward our full renewal, what Paul calls the glory of the children of God. The revealing of the glory of the children of God. And that consummate glorification that is in the resurrection of our bodies, Paul says, is the longing of the whole creation. Because the creation is waiting for its own deliverance into freedom from its bondage. And that will happen when the sons of God are revealed. When we, and what Paul's getting at, is when we are fully in our bodies, in our spirits, fully sharers in the renewal that is in Jesus himself. Because the creation is related to God through human beings, man the image bearer, image Lord to rule over the works of his hands. And the alienation between God and men brings an alienation between God and his creation, the curse over the whole creation. When we are revealed in the glory that is ours in Messiah Jesus, then at that time the creation will be liberated from its own bondage, the bondage to which God subjected it in hope. And so what Paul is saying is the creation is groaning and it's looking to us and our destiny in its hope. And within the creation's groaning is our own groaning because we too are looking to that day. Because when our consummative renewal takes place, then the whole creation, the revealing of the glory of the sons of God, then the creation itself will be liberated. But Paul says something else very interesting, not just that the creation is groaning as it looks to God's ordained future, and not just that we're groaning in our suffering in the circumstances of life, looking to that outcome, but he says in the weakness and the struggle of that contradiction between who we are and what we experience, he says the Spirit himself takes up our groaning. The Spirit himself takes up our groaning. That's the vantage point from which Paul gives his assurance in 26 through 28. Unto this same, he says, we, we hope in that which God has promised, that which God is working towards. We persevere, not just because we hang in there, not because we have fortitude, not just because we can pull it together, not just because we hope we'll get better or whatever, but we, we persevere because we know what God is doing, where this is ultimately going. And he says the Spirit serves us in the, in the same way in the context of our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should. We don't understand how the details fit in this larger work of God. But the Spirit carries our burdens. The Spirit groans in us, with us, with words, with expression of groaning that is unutterable. That's what Paul is talking about when he says this God is working all things together for good. We find that on greeting cards. We find it's a platitude. Oh, don't fret. God's working all things together for good. It's all going to work out in the end for you. It's going to work out the way you want. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not an assurance of our personal good as we imagine it or expect it to be realized. 
the good towards which God is working is the good that he has devised. The eschatological good of the renewing of all things in the Messiah, if you will, the fullness of his kingdom that takes all things into its grasp, such that God becomes all in all. It's the good that is here specifically the perfecting of our humanness, but unto the purpose God has for that perfection. Why is he perfecting our humanness as individuals and collectively as Christ's fullness? It's unto the goal for that perfection, which is his larger purpose for his creation. That's what he's saying in 18 through 21. That's his point. And that working, that working that is the outworking of God's good, the good that God has devised and determined, is the work of the spirit, the creator and recreator spirit. And a crucial component of that working is the Spirit's intercession in the groaning of our suffering, longing, and perplexity. The creation groans, we groan, the Spirit groans with us. He groans with us. That's the Spirit who intercedes for us, the Spirit who binds us intimately to the Father. The spirit in whom it becomes true that I am in you and you are in me. Think back to how many times in, in, from the perspective in which Paul has emphasized the indwelling spirit, the indwelling spirit, the indwelling spirit. And the spirit is not just carrying the burden of our suffering, he inhabits our suffering. God himself is suffering in our suffering not just to feel sorry for us, not just to heal us in a temporal sense, but to sanctify that suffering as a key component of his own work of renewal and perfection. The spirit, you know, our perplexity, our pain, our suffering, all of that tends towards our silence. When we're sick, it's hard to pray. When we hurt, when we're suffering, when we lose people we love, it's hard to pray. When we're perplexed, when we're discouraged, it's hard to pray. It tends towards our silence. We don't know what to say. We don't even know. We, we feel it's like Psalm 73. If I open my mouth, I'm going to end up doing offense to God because I can't even speak. I'm so grieved and so vexed. But the spirit who is carrying out God's work in us understands both the purpose and the goal of this work that God is doing and the relationship that is at the center of it. The God who searches our hearts knows our suffering. How so? Because he knows the mind of his own spirit whose own transforming work underlies our suffering and inhabits our suffering with us. God inhabits our suffering in the spirit. That's the spirit who binds us to the Father. That's the spirit who intercedes as knowing us because we are the dwelling of God in the spirit. He knows his work in us and through us, his work of creation or new creation of renewal. And as knowing the God with whom he is one mind and in bringing 
one mind with the Father and bringing the creation's renewal. He knows us intimately because he is the agent of our renewal and transformation, and he knows the God with whom he is one mind and one being in a certain sense. He binds us together. He carries us in that work even when we don't know what to say. And our lament is often a silent lament. So the Spirit doesn't act as the messenger of our... Paul isn't saying that the Spirit is somehow the messenger of our petitions, that we don't know how to put it into words, but he carries our burdens to God so that it ends up working out the way we want. He's saying the Spirit acts as the Spirit of truth, who mediates this relationship between father and children according to the reality, the truth of that relationship, and the ordained destiny and role of that relationship in God's larger purposes. That's the work that Paul calls the work of Christiformity. Right? Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And that Christiformity results in all sorts of inward and outward struggles. Jesus said, the world, you, you, you in the world will be me in the world. And the struggles that were mine were the struggles that will be yours. That's why Paul says we will be glorified in the Messiah if we suffer with him. Because we're sharers in him. His lot in the world will be our lot. The contradiction, the antithesis, the enmity, the rejection, all of that will be ours if we are sharers in him. But the spirit who is doing this work of Christiformity understands our struggle of suffering in all of its dimensions. Not just sickness, not just loss of loved ones or whatever, but the the, the struggle of, again, doing this thing of new creation, living out new creation in a world that is still under the curse. That it is not yet what it ought to be, the suffering that is characterized by this sort of angst and longing. The spirit who is doing this work understands the significance and the purpose of our suffering, and he carries that truth to the Father on our behalf, even as he embodies the truth of our sonship and the Father's presence with us. We are being built into a spiritual house, right? The dwelling of God in the Spirit. So here's what I want us to think about as we go to a time of prayer. Again, when we think of this thing of lament in Israel's history, in Israel's worship, in Israel's praise, in Israel's scriptures, Israel's praise and worship in its countless prayers of of lament looked towards and was confident in the God who would be faithful to his purposes and what he has promised. And that hope of Israel, that, that groaning, that longing of Israel, that God would yet prove faithful to what he had promised, that has attained its destiny in us. Their hope, their longing has attained its destiny in us. Their suffering in unrealized promise has yielded to God's triumph in Jesus. So the faithful in Israel who lived in hope have become complete together with us. That's what we saw at the end of Hebrews 11. And, but just as the faithful in Israel had to hold tightly to their God and his covenant faithfulness, his righteousness, our God will yet do right. Our God will yet keep 
his word. Our God, it's all a mess. We don't understand it. Everything's falling apart around us. We're suffering. And yet we believe that our God will yet prove faithful because he will keep his own word to himself. Paul says, let every man be a liar. God is faithful. God is true. They held tightly to their God and his righteousness, and it has to be that way with us as well. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete it. A faithful saying. Paul says, I am persuaded, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he will preserve what I've entrusted to him against that day. Whatever's happening now, whatever we suffer, whatever we see, whatever contradiction, whatever difficulty, whatever perplexity, what are all of the things that surround us, the way is to step back from those things and to say, our God is working and he is faithful and he will accomplish his purposes to sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in Christ Jesus. And that's the doxology that ends chapter 8 of Romans. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? And so the answer to our suffering in all of its dimensions, the answer to our perplexity isn't that we call upon, we don't, it's not that we grumble and complain to God till he gets tired of hearing it. And it's not that we plead with him to eliminate all of our difficulties, but our lament is our praise to the God who is faithful and our seeking from him that we would be faithful in the light of his own faithfulness, that we would meet the circumstances of our lives with faithfulness, that we would yield in faith to the work of new creation in us and through us as fellow laborers with God. So I just want to close with, again, the high point of Paul as he discusses this thing of resurrection and what God is going to do and God's goal of becoming all in all in 1 Corinthians 15. And I ask you to go back and read the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, so we have some time for prayer, I just want to pick this up in his kind of summary in verse 50. Paul has talked about how we've borne the image of the earthly Adam, and we will fully, in the resurrection of our bodies, bear the image of the new Adam, the Adam who is life-giving spirit. And so the new body is to be a pneumatikos body, a body animated by, driven by, defined by the life of the spirit, the life of Jesus himself and his spirit. That's what is appointed for us. But he says in verse 50, I say, brethren, flesh and blood, mortality is his point, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Not all of us will sleep. We will not all. Paul didn't know when this this day of renewal would come, but he said there will be some who will not pass into the death of mortality, but all will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Handel's Messiah. 
For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality because of the God who is faithful, the God who has determined, the God who has ordained. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then at last will come about the realization of the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Messiah Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's my point. Here's the way Paul ends. He doesn't say, go and wait until you finally go off to heaven. Go and wait until this day of resurrection. He says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What did I say again? And this is what I want us to take into our time of prayer. The answer, what is our lament about? How do we appeal to God? How how does our lament become worship and praise? It's by understanding our suffering and perplexity in terms of the privilege and the obligation of faithfulness. That we would yield in faith to the work of new creation in us by the Spirit, in the Messiah, by the Father, the work of new creation in us, but more than that or beyond that, through us as fellow laborers with God. Paul says the fact that death will finally in every regard be swallowed up in life doesn't mean kick back and wait till it happens. It means work hard because your labor isn't in vain. Be a fellow laborer with God. Your striving is not in vain. You are fellow laborers with him in the work of the kingdom, in the work of new creation. That's our privilege. And our suffering and our difficulty and our anguish is a part of that equation. It's not something to be delivered from. It's something to be yielded to, recognizing how these things are serving the purpose of God for the whole creation that does have us as individuals as a key piece of it. You see, if we put our suffering and our difficulties in a different perspective, now it can become a matter of worship and praise. And not simply, why do I suffer? Why does it hurt? How come I'm not better? How come it's taking so long? How could you do this to me? It's all a matter of how we think. Well, I will begin in in prayer. And then maybe, Colin, would you close? Well, everybody, as you see fit, when we do these times of prayer, we allow people to pray as they feel led. But again, let's be united in one heart and one mind around these truths as we pray for one another and as we pray even for the wider church and God's purposes in the world. So I'll begin and then pray as you feel led.